0: You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Here we are in Easter week, Tuesday in Easter week. And uh, here in the upper Midwest, we're still getting a little bit of snow, even though it's the middle of April. But that's okay, because finally Lent has ended and... The Lord is risen, and I'm back with you. I'm Chris, one of the three hosts of this show, and I'm here once again with...
1: Marguerite, and I'm one
2: of the hosts of the show as well. And,
0: and I'm J.M. Um
2: I'm the third host. I live in St. Paul, Minnesota.
0: Right before we get started, I want to say thank you... Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to the two five-star reviews that we got on Apple Podcasts. One from Rev Kate and one from Sooner Norm, who I'm guessing lives in Oklahoma, given that name. Anyway, so our our very first five-star reviews, our very first reviews, and they're both five-star, then I'm delighted that uh, this podcast is bringing a blessing to other people as it is to me so and me as well that makes me happy me too so we're talking about chapters five and six we're talking about hazelnuts today or things the size of a hazelnut things the size of a hazelnut (laughs) yeah how are you two doing first of all how was how was the Triduum? how was holy week for you it was weird
2: streamed streamed Easter vigil was a uh, not a not a great experience not terrible but not great
0: yeah
1: um Holy Week was good for me I was able to do it mostly on my own with um, whatever elements of things I could bring to myself and so I had liturgy I had psalms I had readings I had some music um just a little of this and a little of that and I was fine with it not that I didn't miss the congregation but being able to focus being able to like construct the the worship that I had made me very conscious of each day especially of the Triduum but all through Holy Week it made me conscious of each day all through the day so so I was good
2: I think for me the most painful thing was the lack of physicality you know I the the, the full sensory experience of the Triduum felt kind of reduced to two dimensions and that was that was difficult for me
0: I I I didn't even try to replicate you know, so I'm I'm director at a parish, so I was talking to some of the people uh, at my parish about you know whether we were going to try and shoot some video of the liturgies of Holy Week, and we all just kind of said like you you can't you just can't do it justice, like you can't yeah you can't do Starlight Express in a high school auditorium, you know uh, um. You, you can't do, I don't know, things, things scale to different sizes and some things you just can't. I mean, the liturgy itself, right, the Eucharist, you can do with three people or you can do with, uh, you know, a quarter of a million people like when the Pope goes on tour. Um, and it's the same mm-hmm. liturgy, but you just scale it to different sizes. And that works. But, like, the liturgies of the Triduum… I think you need a certain critical mass of people to make them expressive of the, the, the emotional impact of them. So I just didn't, I just didn't even attempt it, which was weird. So I, you know, I prayed the offices online um, Mm -hmm. and it, I just didn't, it felt like the lentiest Lent but the least holy, holy week for me. It's very strange. And then I woke up, you know, like Easter, Easter Monday. So yesterday morning I woke up and I'd done my best to kind of enter into the joy of Easter. And I woke up and I realized that we're still in the middle of all this coronavirus stuff. And there was a little part of my mind, not the rational part, but the irrational part that said, wait a minute. It's Easter. We should be back to normal. Like we should be done with all this social distancing pandemic. I don't like it. I don't like it, (laughs) but that's okay. There's nothing I can do about it except ride, ride it out, you know,
2: ride it out and pray.
0: And Learn from our sister in Christ, Julian, who knew a thing or two about living in times of plague and finding the goodness of God Mm -hmm. despite all of that. So, we're digging into chapters five and hopefully six uh, this time around. If people know anything about Julian, they know that famous phrase, you know, all will be well or all shall be well. And they know apocryphally that she was really into cats. Although I don't know if there's, is there actually any evidence that Julian owned yeah. a cat?
1: None. Yeah. It's, no. it's, it's a thought. Yeah. A good thought, but a thought.
0: I think it is known that anchoreses very, very often had cats. Sure. But we don't have any kind of evidence that Julian herself had one, but she's always depicted as having a cat. Always. <laughs> yeah, Always. But, and then the th- the third, kind of the third most common thing that people know about Julian is this story about the hazelnut, which is, and we encounter that here in chapter five. So mm-hmm. let's, let's dig into it. Okay. Chapter five. What, where do we begin?
2: I think I'd like to, before we get to the hazelnut, just flag this theme of enclosure and this um, idea of being wrapped in God, Um, that he, she says that he is our clothing, which for love enwraps us, holds us, and all encloses us because of his tender love, so that he may never leave us. And that's, uh, I think this is some of the first places where we see that language of enclosure um, that I think is one of the most powerful images for me that Julian gives us idea of being wrapped in God's love, uh, which especially on this rather cold spring morning when I'm having to wrap myself up to take the dog out every couple hours, um, that the sense of warmth and security that that conjures is really powerful.
1: She talks about clothing various times, in both in this chapter and throughout the whole Book, and part of me wants to say that she uses this um, imagery because Norwich was a was a um, a textile place, and so she probably had clothing on the brain, or textiles or cloth on the brain, um, a lot because of the the economy of the place where she lived, but. I all and and that makes sense to me in my normal rational way, but her idea of enclosure is even more compelling, I think um as a as a spiritual thing, as opposed to you know just just casually mentioning, oh, we have clothing around us and then we have our skin around us, and then we have our muscles and then we have our bones and et cetera, et cetera. Um uh, I it's it's a big thing. And then of course then she became an enclosed um anchoress, which is even more um telling, I guess, about how she about how she sees about her how her theology has uh has developed in her. So on to the hazelnut.
0: Well, we could keep running but but skip a bit with this clothing thing, which it, it ties into what happens towards the end of Chapter 6, where she talks about uh, – so the, those of you uh, listeners who have the, um, the orange book, because I've started calling it the Paraclete Essentials Deluxe Editions of the Revelations of Divine Love, which has this kind of beautiful orange cover – um, it's it's on page sixteen in there. No, nope, page seventeen. It's midway through chapter um, six where Julian talks uh, kind of <laughs> wonderfully about the digestive tract and how God one one of the signs of God's mercy and goodness to us is that God has designed our bodies to eat and then. Um, she very delicately says, um, "And in the time of his necessity, is it is opened and sealed again, full honestly, uh, which is the most delicate description of uh, of pooping I've ever heard <laughs> in a spiritual text." But anyway, she goes on to say, "She's quite t- yeah." So she's talking about how one of the ways oh. that we know God loves us is that God has designed our bodies to take care of. Every possible need. Um, and then she goes on to say, for as the body is clad in the clothes and the flesh and the skin and the bones in the flesh and the heart in the breast. So she's talking really about the layers upon layers of protective enclosure within the body. So are we soul and body clad in the goodness of God and enclosed yea and even more intimately, because all these others may waste and wear away, but the goodness of God is ever whole and nearer to us without any comparison so yeah th- from the beginning of chapter five to the end of chapter six, she's talking about these these th- this this uh kind of eternal hug. <laughs> That we get this um, gathering in from God is, you know, as a sign of God's goodness, as a testament to our relationship to God. It's a very intimate image.
1: I think chapters five and six are all about intimacy with God. Hmm. I think that's. Sort of where she's, uh, where she's, where she's thinking. I think that's how she's, how she's thinking of things in these, in these two chapters about how we belong to God because God created us. And therefore, our longing is always for God. And therefore, because of that also, God's longing is always for us. And I think it's interesting that she sees this as a starting place for devotion as opposed to where you end up after you have lived a good life and done all the right things and kept yourself free from sin and gave money to the poor and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That then, I mean, that's how I was brought up, that then you're supposed to be, then you're, then you're ready to meet God after you've done after you've lived a good life and done all these virtuous things, she is saying, Julian is saying, that this is where you start out. You don't have to be any particular kind of way. You just start out there. God loves you just right now. And this is this is your starting place to be intimate with God. This isn't some reward that you get at the end or after, after extreme um, measures of virtue.
0: So is this where you were, is this what you were latching onto when I posted that quote on Twitter earlier from Ruth Burroughs? And you said, we'll talk about that. Oh yes.
1: Yes. Yes. That is
0: what
1: I was calling
0: to. Ruth Burroughs is a a Carmelite nun in England. She's still alive right now. Thanks be to God. But she's, she's fairly advanced in years um, and definitely advanced in wisdom. She's written a number of books, one that comes from mid, 1970s, called Guidelines for Mystical Prayer, and she had this quote that that I put on Twitter earlier today, and she's talking, this chapter is all about like stumbling blocks on the road to spiritual progress. So here she says, God made me in order to give himself to me, and he wants nothing of me, literally nothing other than to let him love me let him pour himself out upon me in everlasting joy. But somehow we have got it into our head. And even when it has gone from our head, it is still written into our flesh that we are to make God love us. We have to make ourselves beautiful in order to be acceptable to him. (laughs) And she goes on for, for quite a while about how this is this kind of, Monstrous assumption <laughs> um, that that keeps us from just embracing what God is is offering, what God is giving. Is that is that baggage that we all carry? The three of us, uh, people in general.
1: Well, I carried it for a good while, but I don't have it any longer. Thanks to Julian and thanks to Jesus.
2: It's something that I carried um, I think in a slightly different form, you know coming I came out of this like very strict tulip calvinist double predestination um, where it was useless to try to make yourself beautiful if you were not beautiful so the the starting point was not this um, lavish gaze of love. At least that was not a universal starting point, that some vessels were created for destruction. And so your, your only hope was to figure out that, yes, you actually were one of the vessels that he looks on lovingly. Um, And so I think um, I carried this baggage of not, not believing that that God is the source and object of the love that I'm asked to live out. For me, me it was my sexuality that was weaponized in that um, my being gay was proof that I was not one of the vessels on whom God gazed in this love. And it's, it's its internal logic is inconsistent, and so, it, it, like you, as I try to describe it, it it starts to fall apart. Um, but this this baggage that I am not worth loving, and that God looks on me with wrath instead of with love, and unlike in frameworks where I need to try to make God love me. I just have to accept that I am destined for damnation. Um, And so this, this pivot to this view that Julian encourages us to take that, um, that God wishes to be known and that um, he is, he is showering us with this love and yearning for us to know him. It's a dramatic shift from the baggage that I was
0: carrying. I would say it, it, it is a dramatic shift. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't really raised in any kind of religious world at all, so I didn't grow up with any kind of like overarching narrative about what God thinks about me because I was raised in a world in which God was, you know, a fanciful, controlling construct made by humans to dominate other humans. Um, so. The The hard part for me was not discovering how um, lovable I was in the eyes of God, but forgiving myself for kind of painting myself into the corner that I'd painted myself into in my mid-twenties. And so when I first encountered God, it was almost this kind of life preserver of love. It was. It had kind of gotten to this point where I had run out of other sources of love, and someone said, "Wait a minute, God is love." And I said, "I don't know, but I'll give it a shot." Like, I I don't know what else to try at this point, so I might as well try God. If you're telling me that God is love, so I I never went through this phase. So net, well. So now I'm trying very hard in the last two years or so to make friends with people that I know who are Calvinists, because I simply can't wrap my mind around that perspective. Um, And because I love them, and because Calvinism is a big deal in Christianity, I at least want to... um try very hard to see what they see but it's very hard for me because it 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 just sounds yeah uh, this notion that like god would create some people and then arbitrarily not look with love on some of them it it, it doesn't make any sense to me but that's okay this isn't like critiquing calvinism podcast <laughs> yeah I don't think Julian would be a Calvinist.
2: Well, I know at least one person, uh, through Twitter who at least jokingly says that Julian's a good Calvinist, um, which I find mind boggling and somewhat irksome. (laughs) Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know that this is necessarily the field. I don't, I don't know that Julian was reckoning with the same questions that, calvinism
0: raises for us maybe we'll have to have a calvinist on as a as a guest at some point to explain (laughs) (laughs) explain themselves (laughs) but so it is a breath of fresh air to have julian just give us this idea that we're not we're not having to prove ourselves to god that we are already enfolded enclosed enwrapped cuddled up in the arms of of god
2: and that that's that journey of embracing um you know i see this uh already but not yet kind of dynamic going on here because we are in julian's eyes wrapped in god's love and yet there is a uh a process that needs to happen um of wanting our essence being one to him that we can never it says truly, um, until I am in essence one to him, I can never have full rest nor true joy. And so there's this we are simultaneously already enshrouded in God and called to allow our souls to be one to God. As I think about the spiritual life that Julian invites us to as far as what does it look like to live the Christian life in Julian's eyes, it it seems to be that simultaneously realizing that we are already, already enfolded and seeking to reach this point where there is absolutely nothing that is created separating God and ourselves. You know, but there's, I, I see simultaneously this truth that it is, that we are already perfectly enshrouded in God's love and that we are called into perfect one-winning with God.
1: She makes it very clear that this isn't something that we will be able to achieve in this life. But we have to know that that it's there for us and that we don't have to earn it. But that it is our nature, our inborn nature, to want to be at one with God. There's no one on this earth who doesn't want that, whether they know it or not. They have, Hmm. they yearn for it. And you can see it in people all the time. If you really look, you can see that they are, they're reaching for something, they're reaching for peace and and love and harmony and and they're they're reaching for god they're reaching for goodness and that is that's what that's what she's saying that that is our condition that's the human condition is to long for god and god is always longing for us and that's and that's what our life is and there's you know there's the, the surrender theme in julian where You basically want to put everything aside, and this goes back to to Chapter 5 a lot. You put everything aside except what you are searching for in God, but that that will, that's, we should talk about the, the hazelnut and how that's the world, but that will help you to live in this world. As someone who is searching for God, as opposed to just someone who is mowing the lawn, buying the groceries, cooking the, cooking the potatoes.
0: So let's turn to the hazelnut. So here's, here's where it yeah. comes up in chapter five. Also in this revelation, he showed a little thing the size of a hazelnut in the palm of my hand. And it was round as a ball. I looked at it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what can this be? What is this thing? It is all that is made. It's pretty remarkable given how vast the universe is. Um, Just even given how vast, you know, England is compared to Norwich, compared to, you know, Julian's house compared to her body to be able to conceive of the whole of creation in such a small item object.
1: Well, I think God showed it to her as something very small so that, so that he could explain to her the smallness of the world as opposed to the greatness of God. And he said that that he he loves it and he made it. Well, the other way around, he made it, he loves it and he keeps it. Even though it is so small and so insignificant. I mean, she could she could have dropped it and it could have rolled across the floor and not be found again. <laughs>
2: Can you say more about that distinction that you see between showing God's greatness versus showing creation's smallness? Like what, what, what I hear, I see where she's making that move rather than the other one, but what significance do you see in that Marguerite?
1: Well, she says that he tells her to set at naught everything that is created. And so that's what, That's what she must do. And I mean, for me, it's very hard in certain stages of your life to set everything at naught. And if you have children, it's very hard to set them at naught. If you have a spouse, if you have a job, if you have, you know, whatever you have, a mother, a father, it's very hard to set. Those things at naught, your own, your own income, your your livelihood, your health. Hard to set those things at naught. But yet, that is what you're intended to do because you are focused on God alone. But because God made these things that you're looking at, that you have set at naught, then God can fill those things. I mean, I don't know if I'm going too far afield or not but God fills those things God fills your your children God fills your livelihood God fills etc cetera, etc cetera. all everything is now embodying God or showing God or telling you that God loves you and so you can be you can see them in that way and that helps you to maintain a maintain a holy distance from those things i would not have been able to take that in a number of years ago but i i can take it in now i think
0: to me i think there's one of the things that that recurs that shows up again and again in the revelations is that God tries several different ways to help Julian to see things from God's perspective and to really take her point of view into a different realm so that she can see differently from, from God's perspective, but not only from God's perspective. And somewhere in my files, I have a, like a Christmas Eve sermon it talks about how one of the ways that God wants us to understand ourselves is to show us both God's greatness and our own smallness and our own privilege and power at the same time. Um, And so there are kind of two strategies that God could take and God does them both, at different times in the Bible. One is to make an awesome display of power, so that people who see it are knocked on their backsides with fear. And then the other the other option that God has is to show how how powerful we are compared to something else. And in this case, because it's Christmas Eve sermon, I talk about God coming to us in this fragile little baby and babies, you know, they're pretty tough. Thanks be to God, but they're very dependent. And so here we are with God kind of being reduced into this newborn infant who's completely helpless. God with Julian takes that fragility stance. And I think when we're presented with fragility, we respond with tenderness and not with fear.
2: This perspective shift that we have when we are shown how small things are, there's the gentleness. And then I think also seeing, futility might be a strong word, but seeing, um, the inadequacy of that to satisfy us, to fill what we need. Simultaneously, this engenders a, a, a loving care for the world, but also shows us, okay, like, look, this hazelnut is not enough to feed me. Um, I cannot find rest in things that are so little, like she says in chapter five. Getting that perspective that and this might be where god showing us the littleness of things has an importantly different effect than god showing us god's greatness if i'm if i'm in the presence of something majestic and i am reminded of how small i am that is a different relationship with majesty then if I am reminded of how everything that I set stock in in the world is small and unable to satisfy that it, it, that that produces a different relationship with God, with the creator that I think I'm realizing as we talk about this, that that is that the demonstrating that, that this life that we're so caught up in is unable to satisfy us God shows that to Julian to drive home the point that we are created to yearn for God and that that's a that's a point that I think is most elegantly made through showing the littleness of creation rather than showing the vastness of God
1: Here's a passage God wishes to be known and he delights that we remain in him because all that is less than he is not enough for us. And this is the reason why no soul is at rest until it is emptied of everything that is created. When the soul is willingly emptied for love in order to have him who is all, then it is able to receive spiritual rest. So that's, that's, that's Julian's brief, I guess to have nothing but god and when when you have that when you have reimagined your your life and your attachment in that context toward that end then is when your life becomes meaningful
0: so how do we get there that may be a rhetorical question for right now but <laughs> this notion this Phrase about the soul being willingly emptied for love reminds me of that hymn in Philippians, the the kenosis hymn in Philippians 2, which version? I've got the New International Version right here, which is not my favorite, but there it is. It's the first one that came up. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, not my favorite translation, but I'm not going to look up another one right now. And that's in Philippians 2, the hymn of kenosis, of emptying of how one of the ways of understanding the incarnation is that God, the Son, by being born as a human being, goes through this act of sacrificial emptying out, of removing everything that makes God the Son identifiable as God and just becomes just human. Although, you know, it's a great blessing to be human. But if you're God first, then I would imagine that it feels very Strange to become just a a, a a person. Anyway, that's that's the connection that I made in my head just then.
2: It foreshadows a in in my mind the uh, parable of the master of the lord and the servant in chapter fifty two. Yeah. That the emptying, the setting at naught Yeah, this idea of emptying us of all that is created. This canada hymn from Philippians and this exposition like the longest chapter in the revelations exploring this emptying and the role it plays in our redemption and the raising us to glory i think i think that's an important correspondence
1: julian uses jesus as the model for you know for this emptying which is what you said and which is what what chris was pointing out through that through the reading from philippians And her focus is on Jesus all the way through. I mean, that is, that's, she ends up with Jesus all the time. I mean, that's, that's her, that is her guideline. And I thought it was, I think it's interesting, both in these chapters and in throughout, is when she talks about Jesus, she talks about his incarnation his passion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. She doesn't talk about his teachings or his healings. She doesn't talk about feeding the 5,000. She doesn't talk about the Beatitudes. She talks about the basic bare bones of his life. And that's that's enough for her. That's That's it for her it struck me that when we hear sermons in church, we hear sermons about teachings, about Jesus' teachings, about the woman at the well and about the, the Beatitudes and all these things, the healings. And I'm sure that Julian knew about some of these things too, but she focuses strictly on the, the high marks in the Jesus story. And I just, I find that amazing and wonderful. And it makes me think that I would like to, I would like to try that out for a while myself and not think about, um, And not think about the other things, because Jesus was a wonderful teacher and he was so kind and so good and all of that sort of thing. And all that's true. I mean, I'm fine with that. But the big thing about Jesus is that he was born as a person, cared for, suffered and died and rose again. That's the core of our religion. That's where we're at. That's what we're about
2: that it's the mystery of the incarnation at the core not right. not the activities of the incarnate word correct that's how that's how i read her for the day-to-day activities yeah
0: mm. somewhere along the way i heard this conceptual framework that there's no such thing as a human being since adam and eve did the wrong thing back in the garden of eden mm-hmm, mm-hmm. nobody has been an actual human being since then we've all been like mutant, distorted, corrupted, like zombie versions of humans walking around ever since Adam and Eve. And because that's what we've grown up with, we just kind of assume that what we see is what humanity is like. But no, since Adam and Eve, none of us have been the fullness of what humanity is supposed to be, except for Jesus, who comes to show us you know this he indicates kind of pointing at the example of his own life this is what humanity is all about uh, th- you know when when i first heard that description it was it was a little bit gory because i didn't want to think of myself as uh, lacking in anything and that concept was definitely making it sound like humans are pretty bad <laughs> except for jesus and until we're kind of fulfilled in jesus but the longer that i have thought about it the more i have said what's positive about that is that it expands the horizons of our potential too often i i have felt it myself and i see it kind of in christianity in general that the idea of being a christian of following jesus is just to kind of like be like you are now except maybe just 3% better whatever that means a little bit kinder A little bit more willing to volunteer your time. You know, maybe you swear a little bit less, but no like sense of grand, adventurous, wholesale transformation of your life such that you actually become a different person, motivated by different things, inspired by different things, living for the sake of a whole different worldview. Right. So there are three characteristics in everything that hath its being by the love of God, this little thing that is everything that is the size of a hazelnut. The first characteristic is that God made it. And the second is that God loves it. And the third is that God keeps it, which allows Julian to have this observation where she describes God as the maker, the lover, and the keeper. Is that the Julian version of creator, sustainer, redeemer? Is that our Trinitarian formula or dare we not pull those apart into three different things?
2: We have to view them as one and the same act in Julian's thinking. She, she talks about that. God has made us only for Himself and restored us by His blessed passion and keeps us in His blessed love and all this is from His goodness. I, I don't think she sees those as separate functions, but this is this is all one the whole drama of creation is and and I mean creation including the redemption through the incarnation and the, the perfection at the eschaton. This whole drama of creation is one act that flows out of God's goodness. I don't, I don't think we can pull apart this making, loving, and keeping. I, I, think, I honestly think part of what she's doing by naming these aspects is to then, at the end of that chapter, tie it all together in God's goodness and say, like, look, this is, this is all the outpouring of, of one principle of action, which is God's goodness.
1: I agree with that. God is one. So I don't think we can pull God apart through function in that way. She does. She does list things in threes a lot. She does. Throughout the revelations. And I think that's just, that's just her way. That's just her way of organizing her thoughts.
0: That's us bringing to, to a close uh, episode number three. Of Notes from Norwich, thank you again, Jan and Marguerite, for talking to me. Thank you. This is great. Thank you. We keep on going. Next time, I guess we'll pick up right in Chapter 6, but I will end with this prayer, this prayer of Julian's. It comes from Chapter 5 that we say a lot. We do. And it goes like this. God of thy goodness, give me thyself, for thou art enough to me. I can ask nothing that is less that can be full honor to thee and if I ask anything that is less ever shall I be in want for only in thee have I all Thank you for listening to this episode to find out more about Dame Julian, The Revelations of Divine Love, The Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.